This event was recorded live at the 2015 Edinburgh International Book Festival. I need a wave before I'm allowed to speak. I can speak. <laughs> um, good evening, everybody. A very warm welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival 2015. Thank you for coming. I'm Kate Took, and this evening I'm in conversation with Kirsten Innes, author of the already much talked about Fishnet. The eagle-eyed among you will notice that there's somebody missing from the stage, and I'll tell you about that in a wee minute. Um, just some housekeeping before we start. Obviously, the mobile phones um, on silent. Apparently you are, if you're tweeters, you are allowed to tweet, but you have to wait till the lights come up for the audience discussion part of the evening and be slightly covert. <laughs> um, you can have a book signed by Kirsten afterwards in the bookshop is where we'll be afterwards. And also, Kirsten, as it's her debut novel, is eligible for the first book award, the festival's first book award, which you can vote for on the website. Um, what we'll do is Kirsten will read once at least, possibly twice. We'll have a chat and then we'll open it out for everybody to chat. However, it might be slightly strange, but I am still going to talk about Melinda's book, even though Melinda's not here. So it was, it was a genuinely very last minute essential cancellation and she emailed to say how sad she was not to meet. She is just starting to do, because this is an English translation of a book that won a couple of prizes in 2010. So she's starting to do English language events and she's loving her English language events and she was looking forward to a vivid discussion as she phrased it. So I think the Edinburgh audience's reputation goes before you. She's obviously heard things. Um, but it's still uh, partly for your benefit, partly for Melinda's benefit, but mostly for my benefit. Having spent a week of my life on this book, I'm going to talk about it. <laughs> If it's the last thing I do. Also because I don't want her to miss out on her English language readership. There are some books which just aren't like any other books and it's very hard to achieve that and this one genuinely is one of those books. I would say partly because of its prose style. Uh, the sentences are a whole paragraph long and the paragraphs are half a page. So the sentences go on for half a page but I think because Melinda is a musician she knows how to pace and punctuate these sentences so that you're never bewildered. You always know where you are and it's a kind of a torrent and you're swept along with it. And it's a narrative voice that's that's not like anybody else's. So for that reason, I think it's worth reading. And also it's 200 pages, but I don't think anyone else would have managed to cover what she's covered in 200 pages. They would have needed 600 pages because it's about the kind of sweep of history in Yugoslavia and the issues of migration and um, but also family life and alcoholism and democracy and socialism and it's all in there and it won two prizes, the German Book Prize, the Swiss Book Prize and I highly recommend it. I almost went as far as reading from it and then I thought I had this vision of Norman Bates dressed up in his mother's <laughs> clothing and me sitting at the signing table pretending I was Melinda. <laughs> so I s decided not to read from it. And instead, we're going to have, which I actually am looking forward to, we get extra time to properly explore one book, which is not always what you get at the book festival. So what we're going to do is hear a reading. In fact, I have to tell you first who's doing the reading, even though she's sitting right next to me and, Spoiler, can, and me. can speak <laughs> for herself. I have to tell you a bit about her. 
So Kirsten Innes is here, obviously, with her debut novel, Fishnet, which is already garnering excellent reviews and accolades. I've just been told that it was shortlisted for the Mislexia Novel Prize in its kind of first draft form and has been shortlisted for the Guardian Books, not the Booker Prize. Janice Versailles said of it, this book is utterly compelling, a brilliant achievement, and the Metro described Kirsten as a new writer with huge talents and promise. Kirsten won a Scottish Book Trust New Writers Award in 2008 and the Alan Wright Award for Excellence in Arts Journalism in 2007 and 2011 and was nominated for the PPA Feature Writer of the Year Award th in three years. Currently writing her second novel, she's also had a number of stories published and commissioned for broadcast. So Kirsten will tell us about the book and then introduce the part she's going to read. What do you show? Um, yeah, you can yeah. stand. Oh, also, I forgot to tell you, <coughs> apparently there might be early fireworks because it's a Saturday night, so if round about nine o'clock we just have to sit and stare at each other for a couple of minutes, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> All <Hi>. together now. <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, Fishnet is... Um, there's two aspects that we're gonna we're gonna talk about about Fishnet, um, and um, I mean the the main kind of topic that it's about if a book is about a thing is sex work. Um, so there are there are a couple of there, there's a main narrative voice, there's a main character and her own personal story happening throughout the book, but it's also kind of broken up with a series of blogs from the point of view of sex workers, um, and also kind of excerpts from their websites, and so I thought what I'd do is um, for this first reading, seeing as I'm now getting two because I've got the whole hour is mine. Um, uh, I'll read you some of these excerpts from these online online sections, and then we can go from there. About me. Meet Sabrina, a stunning 25-year-old bombshell who's just packed with class. A successful model and businesswoman, this elite courtesan loves nothing more than spending time in the company of a gentleman who knows how to treat a lady. Her stunning size 8 figure 32D, 25, 34 means she's both slender and curvy, and her exotic looks and flowing black locks turn heads wherever she goes. She's a, del she's a delight to have on your arm and as com comfortable at large functions as she is up close and personal. Whether you're looking for a brief encounter or a longer date, Sabrina offers a truly sophisticated experience. Hello, gentlemen. Welcome to my site. My name is Holly, and I'm an adorable petite escort with a difference. What you get is the real me. I'm not merely selling sex. I'm offering you my soul. Please don't trample on it. The experience I offer is sensual and intimate. Lots of kissing, lots of stroking. I'm not your cliched call girl. As you can see from my pictures, I have my own unique take on fashion, and I love silky, vintage-looking lingerie, soft satin sheets, and a gentle kiss. Holly Golightly is my idol. Really, I'm just looking for a place like Tiffany's. Please come to me clean and freshly washed. You can even have a shower at my place first if you need to. <laughs> One thing I do not do is... Be can everybody hear me still? Yeah. One thing I do not do is bareback. It's so dirty. Please don't ask me that. I respect my body and yours far too much. Hi, I'm Marie. Oh, for in-calls and out-calls in Ayrshire and with notice out-calls to city centre hotels. I'm a tall, slim woman. 
in my early 30s with long red curly hair. I don't show my face on the site as I value my privacy as much as you do yours, but please rest assured, I am very attractive. <laughs> I'm afraid I'm a fairly vanilla escort, but that doesn't mean the time we spend together will be in any way boring. What I offer is the girlfriend experience, much more like going on a real date than acting out a porn film. I don't do anal, insist on using condoms for everything, and my rates are not negotiable, so don't waste my time asking. I need payment in cash up full up front. Once that's out of the way, we can relax and really get to know each other. Pretty Paulette, Scottish escort. I'm a mature lady who's aging gracefully. I've been a lap dancer and a glamour model, and I've kept my curvy-toned figure very well. In fact, you could call me a bit of a cougar, although please note I will no longer see anyone under the age of 40 and may actually ask you for ID to prove it. <laughs> I'm a great listener, perfectly at ease in formal settings and can probably cater to any sort of fantasy you might happen to have, you naughty boy. Why don't you get in touch and we can discuss what's possible? By the way, discretion is my watchword. Rest assured that no one but us will ever know what happens behind our closed doors. Have you been very, very bad? Would you like to be? I'm Sonia, a pierced, tattooed Scandinavian blonde who just wants to have fun. I offer a specialist fetish and dom service, as well as catering to the kind of guy who likes his girlfriend experience with an alternative twist. I'm bisexual and love to play with women and men equally. My toy box is packed and I'm bound to have something that satisfies you. Wink. Scandi Sonia's FAQ. Can I take pictures of you or film our encounter? No, you may not. How come your rates are so expensive? Because I'm a highly skilled professional who knows her own value. You want Sonia, and believe me, many do, you pay Sonia rates. I'd love to tie you up, handcuff you, share you with a friend. That's simply not gonna happen. I'm a strong woman with a big personality and a brown belt in judo. I'm much more likely to be the one doing the handcuffing. I don't do submissive, so don't bother asking. I don't like using condoms. They itch, they spoil things, they are too small for me. Oh no, poor you. Find another escort then. The next one we bet that I wanted to read there is a little bit quieter, and I'm not sure. <laughs> How, can people hear me at the back with this? Yeah? Okay, I'll just go. Do you remember the first time? Early 40s. Thin. Short, unhemmed like his edges had been gnawed. Something feral about him, but not bad looking. Not really. I thought he'd be ugly. Old and fat and ugly. I thought about fucking someone repulsive. Fantasized about rolled lolloping flag that would shake as he shagged. Tried to train myself into it. Old skin touching me. Instead, just this little vulpine man. Smell of dead smoke off him. His mouth was dry, smacked as he opened it to say hi, white flecks in the corners. I said hi back and he let me in. Just two of us in a room, a very ordinary hotel room. I'm Jimmy, he said. Rona, I said. That was the name I used when I was starting out. Yeah, I guessed. Of course. So. So. That's when I realized it was my job to break through this, my job this, to ease him out of the nerves, to take his hand. Maybe it was his first time too. All I had to do was smile at him and say in this voice like it was a totally normal thing to say, so, shall we discuss services? And I smiled at the end a wee bit, like we both knew how awful a thing it was to have to ask, to have to reduce it down to the money. Just the basics, please, just the R. 
The words flat, no expression. He handed me an envelope without me having to ask. It probably wasn't his first time. My phone rang before I could check the amount. I'll just need to... Of course, he said again. No, not his first time. So, she said down the line. And I thought, well, I'm not sure. It was something you were supposed to know by instinct, she'd said. Well, my instincts weren't telling me to run, but they weren't telling me anything at all. I was just in a room with this expressionless man and he was skinny. I'm here and it's fine, I said. Okay, I've got the hotel on speed dial anyway, she said. Two rings as soon as the hour's up and good luck, my honey. If my instincts had been telling me anything at all, the code was, I'm here and he's really lovely. We both stood there in the silence again, and I remembered that this was, again, my job. Give me two seconds, I said, taking a step towards the bathroom, while I go and change into something more. Just do it here, he said, gesturing to a space on the floor. I'd like to see you undress. I was thinking, I haven't been able to count the money yet. He sat down on the bed looking at me, and I stood in front of him and pulled at the zip on my dress. It stuck for the first few seconds and I had to wrestle with it, trying to keep smiling, swaying my hips a little, trying to distract him, cheap fucking thing. It came eventually and I let it swish down around me, stepped out of it. See-through panties and a half-balcony bra, so this man, this stranger, was now pretty much seeing me naked. He didn't say anything, his face didn't change, but he unzipped the front of his trousers and pulled himself out, already mostly hard. Would you like me to suck your cock? Yeah, he said. I'm right in thinking I don't need to wear a condom. Not for oral, no, I said, just like that was what I always said. Eyes closed and it's just like giving any other blowjob. Could be someone I'd met in a bar. Could be a new boyfriend. I was touched that he'd washed it. We spoke in these clipped, formal sentences, both of us. Like neither of us were there for the conversation, so what was the point in pretending? made sense. He helped me in a way that wee skinny Irishman because my response would have been to crack jokes to ease things through a bit. And of course with some clients you can do that and it's great. But the first time, this one, he helped me pare everything right down, establish a rhythm and a way of being in the room. It wasn't a kindness to me. He was just a customer waiting for a service. I was the provider. That was the point. It didn't occur to me until afterwards that I'd crossed over that I'd actually done it, that I was now not one of you. Anyway, whew, yowza, has this blog got serious, right? For being such good and patient little parves, you can have a sneak preview of my new panties. I do love my bum. Thank you. <laughs> so thank you very much. To contextualize that um, for the book, the reason we, we get these blogs and we hear from the bloggers is because there's a main character called Fiona whose sister has gone missing and she gets an idea that maybe her sister is involved in the world of sex work, so she starts to research it. So it's, it's Fiona researching the blogs. Mm -hmm. um, and I wondered, which is probably what everybody wonders when they first interview you, why did you did you <laughs> get this feeling like this subject needs addressed and I am the one to do it? How did you get into writing a novel about sex work? 
that would be incredibly arrogant if I were <laughs> to do that. Um, it just seemed to, it seemed to kind of happen. I'd been, I'd been working on a story for ages, uh, a novel. I had about ninety thousand words of it, and um, it was an incredibly complicated thing. It, the idea was. Uh, <laughs> three different movements of the novel and one of them was structured like the movements of the gay gardens and one of them was structured like a dashing white sergeant and then one of them was structured like a strip the willow and what on earth that's a bestseller <laughs> <laughs> Ninety thousand words in i was and all these different characters were kind of tangling up in the different movements of the dance all the way through it and um i won the creative writing the sorry the scottish book trust new writers award and with that award comes a mentor who talked some real sense into me and said this is an incredibly complicated thing that you're trying to do here why don't you look at this one story that you've got here the story of these two sisters the one who's older and the younger sister who's gone missing look at that story instead that seems to be the most interesting <laughs> and uh, so I jumped 70,000 words of the of the first novel um, which hurt really really hurt um, and so I had the story of these two sisters to concentrate on at the same time I was working as a journalist uh, for the list magazine and i was sent on an assignment for one of their sex issues to interview women who worked in edgy sexy jobs um and i did a lot of research and i came back with an escort who had a blog who was based in in scotland and they went oh no that's too edgy um, <laughs> um so yeah i think i ended up speaking to like one of kate middleton's school pals who runs a sex party business in London or something instead. Um, but the, this escorting, this, this escort's voice um, on her blog really, really stuck with me. And I will admit that it did so because I don't think it had actually occurred to me that a prostitute, you know, would have that sort of awareness and intelligence. I'm really embarrassed to admit that now. Um, I hadn't, it wouldn't necessarily be something I'd be consciously thinking of, but um, yeah, I, I hadn't, and, and it really stuck with me. And I, I carried on reading her and reading, you know, the, there's an incredibly supportive, this was around 2009, 2010, um, when online uh, sex workers were really beginning to be able to use the internet um, to form a community to support each other and kind of reach out to each other because obviously it's an incredibly difficult thing to do and also to get their voices heard, beginning to get their voices heard. Um, so from this one blog, I was following all these other women and kind of really reading. This was kind of before Twitter, so I was really reading their, their blogs every day and these thoughts. And from there, it would kind of take me into reviews, um, which um, customers had posted on forums like Adult Work, um, where customers review the services offered by, by the women. Um, and sometimes there is some horrendous misogynistic language on there. but what really struck me all the way through was just this complete repositioning of everything I thought I knew and thought I understood about what prostitution was, about what sex work is, um, without ever having thought about it too deeply. I think because it's such an easy thing to sensationalize and because sex workers' voices are still so rarely heard in society, um, we kind of filled that gap with an imaginative sort of horror of our own. We've all got these very lurid storylines. I mean, that's kind of why I called the book Fishnet, actually. I mean, the first thing you think of, you know, newspaper editors will always use a stock photograph of a thigh, you know, a woman pulling a fishnet, stocking up a thigh to illustrate a story about sex work. Um, 
And yeah, it just it just struck me that there were voices in there that maybe weren't being heard and possibly I could do something um, like that. So I started, um, am I jumping, am I answering yeah, like no, five of I'm your questions no, at once, I'm, Kate? Um, <laughs> yeah. Oh my God, something <laughs> um, Yeah, because if you, if you see tag or, you know, any television drama that, that involves prostitutes being murdered, whatever. Oh yeah, yeah. It's very much what you've described. And it's always very, very lazy characterization as well. There's not, there are very few um, sex worker characters out there in kind of the history of literature and, and film and TV that are That's these sort yeah, of well-rounded, thoughtful characters um, who I have real lives. I was just so lives. glad that you'd, A, you'd taken it on, but you'd moved it on for, for those of us who were the kind of pretty women generation. That was the last time I saw sex work portrayed in popular culture and and it wasn't done very well. <laughs> you know, so somebody needed to do this properly. But I could tell, if you're going to take on a topic like that, you're, you're also doing it in the novel form and you have a responsibility to write a novel mm -hmm. and to give people a, a, a satisfying reading experience. Yeah. And not, like we said earlier, hit them over the head with the issues. And mm -hmm. I think you managed. Were you aware when you were handling the material, you know, as a writer, there's, I've got a message. Did you feel you had a message, but you had to be very careful about how you presented? I didn't. For the most of the time that I was writing this book, I genuinely didn't have a message. Um, I mean, most of the time I was writing it, my attitudes and thoughts about what sex work was were flip-flopping all over the place. My, you know, I would um, go out for lunch and meet, um, you know, somebody who, a very, very articulate um, sex worker who's also, um, say, she's a, a campaigner and advocate for sex workers' rights, you know, p a politicised. And then I'd go straight back on and, and research these forums where, you know, the women were being talked about in these awful ways. My brain just went back and forth. My political compass was spinning back and forth the, the whole time. So I, I didn't set out to write a book with a specific message but what I did feel that I wanted to do was just write some sex worker characters who are actual believable human beings who maybe went to the supermarket or um, you know had a pet or had had a kid mm. and um, you know weren't just ne these tragic victims that had to be pitied at every moment throughout. Mm. Did you feel like the the people who gave you their time you must have maybe did you find them on the internet and tiptoe your way into asking if you could speak to them and then were yeah. they kind of on your shoulder a wee bit when you were writing feeling like I need to I have a duty of care to an to extent yeah I mean I was this really uncomfortable bloated voyeur for the first year I started looking into this sort of hovering around all these blogs and forums and finding out so much about it but it just existed in a vacuum in my head um so I plucked up the courage to kind of meet either on Skype or um in person, some of the people who, you know, his work I really admired, his writing I really admired, who I was really, his voices I was really interested in. And um, yeah, they, they gave me, they gave me time. And um, there was, for the whole of 2012, I didn't look at the manuscript at all. I hid away from it. I'd become terrified of how big the subject was um, and had a huge crisis of confidence where I didn't think I was in any way the right person to, you know, how dare I presume that I could do this. Um, <coughs> and um, it's just like an all-night firework show. I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
And um, it was my, my partner eventually pointed out to me very gently, I don't think it was that gently actually, um, <coughs> that there were a lot of people who had given me their time on the understanding that I was going to try and get a book published that addressed issues that they cared about or issues that they wanted brought up. Um, you know, they knew it was fiction, they knew it wasn't going to be a factual book. And um, that sort of spurred me on actually because <coughs> Yeah, there was there was already a wee bit of a weight of expectation there behind the the book. So yeah, yeah, yeah uh, it certainly um, it doesn't ex it, it takes on the stereotypes and then it shows you gives you a whole range of alternatives to the stereotypes mm -hmm. of a sex worker. Um, and there's a seems to be a kind of spectrum. There's of choice levels of choice or reasons why people get in there and how much choice they have in ending up there. And at one end, there was a reading from Sonia, the Scandinavian sex worker, and she's a PhD student, mm -hmm. so highly intelligent, highly articulate, thoroughly enjoys sex and uh, thinks it's a you know it's a kind of natural way to use. If she's got this great skill set, why not use that to pay her? way through her studies almost and then at the other end of the scale um, there's quite a debate in the book about the level of damage you would need to have in order to get involved in sex work people respectable people who are not involved in sex work assume that you have to be a victim or slightly mad or uh, have had a very difficult upbringing or have no other choices um. and it's not really resolved it's it's there for us, but it's not necessarily resolved. Yeah, I mean, the, the character Helen, who kind of, she addresses that. She's um, very, very working class, mid to late 40s, has been a sex worker for a very, very long time. Um, and I had, um, I wanted to bring a lot of the voices together, so I kind of artificially created a thing called um, the Scottish Union of Sex Workers. There are actual collectives of sex workers, um, English Prostitutes Collective. Um, there's a lot of great work done by organisations like Scott Pep. Um, sex Worker Open Uni is another great thing to come. You know, sex workers are coming together now, but for the sake of this needing to have a lot of different points of view in the same room shouting at each other at one point, I invented a, what's basically a union. And um, there's this character, Helen, who's in there and, um, you know, she's not, she doesn't necessarily, she's not, she's not educated, she doesn't get the, the codes, the way that the educated people behave, she just wants to say her piece and, and, and have said it. The, the one, sorry, I've kind of lost myself no, there. She kind of does it more, more well, another theme in the book, the c there's a sanctuary base in the city centre where the women can or you know, sex workers can drop in of an evening, have a cup of tea, get something that they might need, some advice. And one of the storylines in the book is that it's under threat from the council. So you get this n nice illustration of those with power uh, leading the agenda or trying to control the agenda mm -hmm. and, and the, the people actually at the coalface with no voice and no agenda. And Helen, she just nails it. She's a very articulate woman, but she doesn't have the right voice. She doesn't have the right mm -hmm. accent. She doesn't wait her turn to speak. And she leaves as soon as she said what she wants yeah. to say. So she's the effect of what she said is lost. You know, it's very but sad. I felt that um, with Helen and with characters like her, I mean, the majority of the characters in this book, the, the sex worker characters are escorts and they tend to be independent escorts. Um, mainly because actually those were the people who would speak to me, who I could get hold of. Um, I'm trying to acknowledge in the book that there are 
a number of other spectrums of sex work, a number of other levels of sex work out there um, by addressing things like the, the sanctuary-based mm -hmm. um, closure and just trying to sort of get to the, the politicisation that a lot of sex workers are beginning to feel now. But I didn't necessarily want all the voices in there to be independent escorts. It's not a kind of... It's not. Uh, it's definitely not glamorised. It's not, you know. It's it's not a kind of um, like Belle de Jour, the TV series, rather than the very well written blog. Um, <laughs> uh, it's 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 not that kind of glossy. Uh, I'm not trying to sell any myth of a happy hooker. I'm just trying to write real people mm. doing their jobs. And um, you know, the reason that every single one of my characters gets into it is still economic it's still about money um, and I tried to reflect a lot of the stories that I'd heard or been told um, you know a lot of people um, a lot of women um, go go into it from there, there was a there was a survey published recently um, about uh, which which found that a lot of sex workers had actually chosen that from jobs in the NHS or um, care working jobs because sex work paid more gave them more control over their hours gave them time to see the kids. Um, I met a woman who worked as a cleaner. Um, she had to be up at kind of four o'clock in the morning. She had a small child. She was a single mother. This really wasn't working. Um, you know, so she would instead send her child off to school. Her neighbour would kind of come in. Um, the story kind of made its way into the book is that as well. Is it's that the neighbour that will watch if the client wants it? <laughs> <laughs> there's I, I there's like an old lady in the book who watches. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, you'll find out. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, I, I added that in from another uh, <laughs> from another <laughs> example I'd find. But I wanted to just make it clear that there's this whole spectrum of people going into this line of work and um, just kind of humanise them a bit. I think I've probably said that about eight or nine times now, sorry. <laughs> That's okay, have you heard back? Like, have any of the women that you formed a relationship with read the book? And have yes, I, I, sent it, I sent it thoughts? to a couple of them. I, I, I wouldn't have sent it out for publication without checking through with them. Because, I, I, I mean, when I started out, I wrote this short story called Beefcake, um, which was also about escorting. Just about everything I've written for the last five years has been about sex work in some way, actually, because I've just been so consumed with the subject matter. But I wrote this short story, Beefcake, and then I met one of uh, one of these women, uh, one of the women, uh, Laura Lee, who's um, she's amazing. She's a good pal of mine now, and um, she's very, very brave. But I'll get onto her in a wee sec. Um, and I gave her this short story, Beefcake, to read, and she was just like, "Oh, you think that's what happens, do you?" <laughs> <laughs> um, so. Yeah, there were certain people that I wanted to read through that book and make sure that I wasn't just completely... I mean, it is still a work of fiction. It's all a work of fiction. And I needed people to make sure that I wasn't just off in my own little sunny world about what it might be like. So, yeah. yeah. You've just reminded... I don't know. No, I won't ask it here, but there's something I want to ask you afterwards. <laughs> 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 Anyway, so <laughs> another thing, but genuinely another thing that the book does very well, ostensibly it's about sex work, but mm -hmm. what it does is it holds a mirror up to the general kind of pornification of behaviour, adult sexual behaviour generally. And um, if, you, if you look at the average night out, the only difference is there's no money changing hands. You know, there's women on a hen weekend that do pole dancing lessons followed by pole dancing display in the pub. 
and um, people meeting in bars and going back with two guys to a hotel room and and so the people who are judging the sex workers are doing all the same things themselves just not getting paid for it and that and that needs i think that is something we need to talk about and have mm -hmm. needed to talk about for many years is just um just the way you're if you don't look like a porn actress nowadays as a woman w like when i like you see school girls dressed up all crazy looking why are we why is this <laughs> going on and nobody's saying enough but i, d I didn't want to uh, i did want to kind of the story that I wanted to tell did, does exist against that sort of sexual backdrop. Yeah. But there's, I mean, I did want to kind of make it clear so that the main character, um, when she's about a good couple of thirds through her journey, um, she kind of, she and she's got a little daughter. She and her daughter are in a bus station and they see these teenage girls kind of doing like, trying to do sort of cleavage selfies and putting on and then they're, they're maybe about 14. For the purposes of sharing it on social yeah, media. Yeah um, and she, her first impulse is to sort of to get very judgmental and tell her, her daughter, her very small daughter, oh they're bad girls darling, they're bad girls and then she kind of steps back on herself and thinks wait this is actually just the same attitude that kind of you know, just just an instinct to say it's oh bad yeah, when it's just contributes a to the problem. Yeah, like, oh yeah, yeah. So I wanted to kind of step back from that. It does exist within, um, within an actually, you know, within a space where there's a, there, there's a lot of casual sex. There's a lot of, um, and it is a very highly sexualized culture that my very repressed narrator finds herself in. Um, yeah. But yeah, I didn't necessarily want to to be judging the people who are participating in that sort of behaviour, even if they're, yeah. you know, But there's a whole well. debate to be had about why are we doing that now? Why why are we pole dancing as a hen weekend activity? Etc. Etc. <laughs> but I did wonder, it must have been a conscious choice to give the main character a young daughter rather than a young son. Yeah, it was a son originally, actually. Um, and then I just, um, yeah, I realised halfway through that, yeah, of course, there should yeah, be a daughter at yeah. this point. So, yeah. Because yeah. the book, when you close the book, you're just left with the sense of, what kind of experience as a female uh, is this girl going to have when she grows up? Mm -hmm. It just carries everything on for the reader, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What we were going to do, because we have the luxury of time, is have a second reading from Kirsten where she's going to kind of read about the maybe the relationship between the sisters mm -hmm. in the book. Yeah, because it's actually it's a pivot. It is the pivotal relationship of the book, even though one of them is entirely absent. Does anyone want to set off any fireworks now? Let's <laughs> just get that out of the way. The first time I noticed what Rona could do was the year after the divorce. Mum was renting out the house while she travelled. Dad had moved to a tiny suburb on the outside of the city. The sort of place that had probably once been a village in its own right, co-opted into the city by bypasses and Tesco's and housing schemes. It was February. The air was sharp and good for you. We were wearing an extra jumper under our coats. 13. She was 13, for fuck's sake, probably hadn't even started her period yet. There were only five of us at my school who lived out that way. Me and Rona, Jenna Anderson in the fifth year and her wee brother, and Malky Lamont. If we made it in on time, which we usually didn't, we could catch the school bus, the one put on by three city centre schools for a desperate br bunch, kids from village schemes and the part-timers staying with the parent who made the less money. Anyway, that day we were on time. We weren't going to shamble, shamefaced into first period as usual. Crossed the road and I went to grab her hand out of instinct. She glared right up at me. 
I'm not a baby, and there's no bloody traffic. Ugh, I was in a good mood that day anyway. We sat down in the wee shelter, and I leaned out the one window where someone had punched the, punched the scratched plexiglass, punched the scratched plexiglass <laughs> away completely, grinned up the hill, still a bit heathered, the sky above it blinking off the last of the sunrise. Rona was 13, but she already had more chest than I'd ever get. Not that I knew that at the time, still clinging to Judy Bloom's tales of hope and late development. <laughs> Even in uniform, I was nobody's fantasy of a schoolgirl. I've never really worked out how to stand. But this is the day I realized it. Just the two of us that day. Looking up the hill again, I saw him coming. Malky Lament. He was in my year, but we never spoke. What would we say? He'd been in trouble ever since he arrived, just turned up one day about six weeks into second year. I think it was the way he looked at the teachers. Default expression of solid, nasty insolence. Eyes deep set with a shock of long fantasy girl's eyelashes. Greasy, gingery curtains over a round head. Fat lips always wet and half open. Not 16 and already sexed, sizing the female teachers up when they told him off just standing there, itemizing them, breasts, legs, back up to the crotch where he stopped till they backed down, everyone. There were whispers about who he'd poked round the back of the science building, who would let him get three or four fingers up, who he'd gone all the way with. Nobody really mentioned whether the girls had much say in the matter. It was Malky Lamont. He just happened. My plain girl's invisibility cloak didn't work on him either. I'd had to pass him in the corridor on the way to PE once, and he'd put his arm up, not let me get through till he'd had a good, slow look. No words, just letting me know he would if he felt like it. You dreaded getting anywhere near him during country dancing in the progressive numbers. You can see that this is an older bit of the book. <laughs> but you dreaded it silently. Malky Lament was coming down the hill now to the shelter. Soft flop of cock at the crotch of his tracky bottom, sour smell coming off him downwind. Malky Lament was only physical. The times before when we'd made the bus, hulking Gemma Anderson and her brother had been there, the two of them like a barrier, soaking him up a bit. Not today. And he was coming over. I curled into the wall of the shelter, carried on staring out the window frame, ready to flinch, wondering after what never-ending never length of time the bus would come. But he wasn't there in the shelter. I turned around and saw him standing in the grass, him and Rona facing each other, her hood was down, the coat open and slipping off her shoulders, her hair blown back from her face, just staring right at him, eyeballing, keeping his sight line level with hers. Her jaw was set, not the way it would be when she was going to start a fight. I didn't understand what I was seeing, really. I'm not sure I do now. No idea what their two bodies were saying to each other. Malky Lament didn't move. I didn't move. The bus came and Rona broke it, stepped past me and told me to come on, making her point. Schoolies spilled and burst all over us, jeering across the aisle, warmth, the stink of fart in the air. Somebody's tinny transistor playing that Robert Miles song, children scratching and fuzzy at the strings. Rona was three paces ahead of me, cutting briskly through the tangled limbs of the aisle. She got a seat beside a smaller girl in her year, turned to her and started chatting. Are you getting on then, son? The driver was asking. Malky Lament walked quickly down to the back seat where his mates were whistling at him, head down. Didn't stop to brush his groin up against any outstretched knees. Didn't look at Rona. I looked at her instead, through the seat behind, 
her and thin, lank Donna Bruce nattering away, the same age except one of them was a child and the other one wasn't. Next time I got a chance to talk to her was after lunch, passing her on the way to French. What was all that about this morning? All what? You just need to remember I'm not actually a baby, Fiona. You know what I mean? With him, with Malky. I whispered that, but I didn't want to get caught saying his name out loud. No idea what you're talking about, she said, peeling off and away from me, her, her, her hair whipping out behind her. I wasn't even surprised when the knock on the door came that night. Dad was out at the shops and Rona was in the toilet, so I went, already knowing who it would be. Eh, uh, is your sister in? He was wet through. It just stopped raining, huddled up under a man's coat too big for him. I looked down on him from our front steps and thought it was maybe the first time I'd ever actually heard him speak. I wasn't sure what to do, so I just closed the door on him. Softly, went back into the living room and turned the telly up louder. That was it for Rona, though. I heard her new laugh in the corridors and on the bus, bright and healthy. From nowhere she had boyfriends and then boyfriends, until third year. Mostly, oh sorry, mostly third year, but once for two terrifying, glorious weeks until the slaggings from his friends got too much for him. Chris Wood in fifth year, captain of the football team, lead actor in the school plays. Never Malky Lament, although I'd catch him staring at her sometimes, staring at her cheek on the bus, immobilised. She was untouchable for the likes of him now. She walked taller than me, bunched her school skirt into her belt, stretched her legs out at break times to pull her socks into thick rolls down over each ankle. She started staying out late, crashing home at one and three and four. Her clothes and makeup got much, much cooler than mine very quickly. I'd pass her in the playground, screeching and flirting and petting with an entirely different set of friends from the ones she'd had before. I just stood back and watched her, got my grades, told no tales to either parent. We can open it out to all of you. And I think there is a microphone that you need to have in your hand before you speak. But if you put your hand up, then I will know who wants to speak. Any questions for Kirsten? <coughs> yeah, fire on. You mentioned that you built a relationship with some sex workers and kind of mentioned someone called Laura Lee. Oh, yeah. But you didn't really Have you? Do you it. know Laura Lee? <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't know Laura Lee. But, um, <laughs> Sorry, does, I couldn't resist. So maybe you could tell us more about the relationships you've got with um, some of the sex workers or how that's how you're, that's grown as you've kind of got to know them over the years. And sure. Talked about um, yeah, uh, Laura Lee is, she's brilliant. She's... Um, She's from Belfast. She, uh, she started working um, as a sex worker when she was 18 in a massage parlour um, just to get herself through university. Sorry, Dublin, not Belfast. I know that's really offensive to any Irish people in the room. This is quite a stressful situation. <laughs> um, and um, she's, you know, she's, she's been in the business for 20 years now. Um, she has recently decided... To, she, she, was, she was always a blogger. Um, but she, you know, like most sex workers on their on their own sites, she wouldn't sh she wouldn't show her face. She needed to kind of maintain that anonymity. Um, and recently, she took a decision to actually become a public face. Um, and the reason she did this was because she felt that there are not enough people out there advocating for sex workers' rights, um, and you know, just general kind of human rights, working rights. Um, we can chat about amnesty and what's just happened there 
as well if anyone's interested. Um, so yeah, Laura took the decision to out herself, essentially, um, to become a public face um, behind, you know, somebody who can go on television, somebody who can put that voice out there, which is an incredibly brave thing to do, I think. So yeah, she's um, she's a pal. I'm, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm in touch with a lot of the a lot of the people who I met researching this, but there's more, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting position to be in. As somebody who's written a book, um, I'm really happy to talk about sex work at literary events when it's just me on the panel. Um, if it's not a literary event, I would only feel comfortable about doing that if there was actually a sex worker kind of somehow represented as well. Um, just because I think one of the main issues is that we don't hear enough from sex workers' voices and that contributes to this gigantic stigma um, around, it contributes to a stigma, it contributes to a mytho mythologizing and um, you know, it's, it's just really important to get those, those make those voices heard as well. Um, I did Women's Hour recently and um, I was on with an academic who's also done a lot of research and the two of us said um, beforehand, we're not comfortable going on this programme unless you will also have a sex worker you know, represented on the panel, it's radio, surely that's, you know. And they said, yep, yep, that's fine, there will be a sex worker in the two of you as well. And um, what we didn't realise was that the sex worker was going to be interviewed in a video, in, a, in a, an audio package beforehand, which was cut. Uh, it wasn't, sorry, it wasn't cut from the programme, it was, it was edited by, by the programme. So she was, edi she was interviewed beforehand, um, then the presenter was allowed to editorialise on top of what she'd said. And then it was over to the nice middle-class novelist and the nice middle-class academic to talk about what that meant. Um, and both of us hadn't realised this until we were on the air, and we felt very uncomfortable about that. And she, had the, the sex worker, actually did get in touch with both of us um, later on and say, you know, that she'd felt quite uncomfortable. She hadn't realised that it would be this situation as well. And it just seemed to be, to women's hour, that just seemed to make sense that that would be how you program it. Well, here's a thing. And now let's us nice middle class people discuss that thing that we've just mm -hmm. heard about. Isn't it horrible? Um, so yeah, I, I, that was not exactly the question you asked me, but there we go. It's <laughs> okay. Are there any other questions? Yeah. Oh, one at the back. Hi. Um, Hi. You did very well with the fireworks, by the way. I Thank know. <laughs> <laughs> well done. I couldn't um, even hear myself. So <laughs> <laughs> we could hear you. Um, so the question I've got is actually about the form of your book. Mm -hmm. um, so from the readings you've done, it suggests that there's blogs involved which have some resonance with real-life blogs, um, but also a narrative about two sisters. Yeah. So could you maybe say a little bit about why the book took the form that it did? Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I just kind of... It, it actually kind of follows on from the second question. I thought at first that I was going to write a book from the point of view of a sex worker. That was and one of my questions. Was yeah. Did you ever think about starting the story immediately with a sex worker as the main character? Well, yeah, I did. And I tried it out and um, I felt very uncomfortable with it. And it took me a while to put my finger on why. And it kind of goes back to that um, not necessarily feeling that I had the right to, to tell that story. And I mean, obviously, if all novelists worked like that, we'd all get very, <laughs> there would be an awful lot more novels about novelists writing novels than there <laughs> are already. There are already too many. Um, but yeah, it, it just it just didn't sit right with me. I didn't feel that it would be, it, it just didn't seem to make sense to me to be, you know, thinking the way that I was thinking and also trying to talk on behalf. But I wanted some way of getting sort of sex working voices through. 
And um, not only did the blog seem like a really good way to do this, but also um, it, it seemed to make sense to me just in kind of conveying the way that sex work has moved so massively online. Um, you know, this, the, this online world that has kind of, um, you know, since the internet, that, that industry has completely changed. It's allowed a lot more sex workers to take control of themselves. They don't have to work through agencies necessarily. It's, it's you know, we're, we're so far beyond those little cards and phone boxes, this kind of thing, um, and, and this whole world. And, and also it's allowed sex workers a chance to get their own voices back. So essentially the story is, um, it starts with, um, it starts after Rona, the younger sister in that story, has been missing uh, six and a half years. She just walked out one day. And um, it, it actually, it starts with a kind of flashback of, of Rona as, as a 19-year-old. As a and then you find out that she's, she's gone missing. And um, uh, Fiona's on a hen weekend in the tiny little village, which is might or might not rhyme with Schmavi more. Um, <laughs> um, uh, Rona's on a hen weekend in a Highland skiing resort village, uh, where, um, where, um, uh, which is the, the last place that her sister was living. And um, there's just been something niggling away at her, you know, since the last time they were there, which was six years ago when they were trying to find out what had happened to her. And she goes to, she just goes on a complete whim to um, find out what's going on with this, uh, to, to talk to Rona's old flatmate again. And Rona's old flatmate eventually says, well, I kicked her out because she was, she was a prostitute. I came home and found a man with his thing out in my living room. Um, and <coughs> from there, Fiona's kind of really, really driven to, to start investigating this world. Then she goes back to work. So these two things kind of happen together. She goes back to work and finds out that the construction company she works for is about to knock down this, has got the contract to knock down this um, sanctuary base for street workers. And there's a protest happening outside, outside her construction company. And so these things kind of come together and, and she suddenly feels like the whole world is pointing her towards this world she hadn't really thought of very much at all before. Um, yeah, that was another really long answer, <laughs> sorry. So, um, well also to help answer Mary's question, so there's the family narrative, there's the, mm -hmm. the family trying to survive the loss of the daughter's yeah. sister, which has a huge impact on them, but they weren't the most stable family before no. she disappeared. And it's almost um, the main character, Fiona, she's kind of, she's got a child in her 20s and she's kind of therefore underachieving. It's just that perennial struggle of the female to earn enough in a job that's intellectually challenging enough. Mm. So she's got this kind of slightly downtrodden office aspect yeah. to her life and this um, low-skilled oh, office job. She doesn't have a life. She's just, yeah, she so just goes to work, she comes This home. kind of researching the world of sex work on the internet suddenly becomes her life. Mm -hmm. and, and that's where the these two narrative strands, it's, just, it's her absorbing alternative life, really, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. yeah. You could just come with me and see <laughs> that. Whenever <laughs> anybody asks me what my book's about, that'd be great, Kate. Thank you. <laughs> Is there, oh, there's a question at the back. Um, so without wanting to appear like a middle-class prude in any way, shape or form. Oh, we all are, don't I worry. Know, this is it, but let's confess, we all are. I, I'm horribly understanding of all of the issues you raise, and yet, as a feminist, where does the patriarchy sit in all of this? Like, where does... 
is there an acknowledgement? Because it sounds like your book is really sort of talking about, especially because Fiona's life is also mm-hmm. an underachieving sort of situation. Also underachieving, that's not the right word, but you know, you know what I mean. So I just, I guess I wonder about, yeah, where the let's destroy the patriarchy element is in, I don't, this is my yeah. question. It's a that very vague question. Th- yeah, that might lead quite nicely into mentioning the amnesty stuff as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. we could have a chat. Um, the, uh, I guess, the patriarchy, uh, if, if it was represented in the book at any level, is um, it's at once in um, kind of the the bosses of Fiona's construction company and uh, the... Um, no, that was a subplot that I cut out four years ago. I'm not going to talk <laughs> about that. <laughs> no, 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 that was. But um, I, was, I was just about to say something that, yeah, completely from, from the old book. Um, so, yeah, there's, there's the bosses at Fiona's construction company. There's the idea of the way that an office is structured and the way that women's place in the office. Um, you know, there's a character, um, Moira. I changed her name quite a lot, so I just had to grasp for it there. Uh, there's a character, Moira, um, who works in Fiona's office, um, and despite the fact that she's been there 11 years and she's as senior as the men, she makes the tea, you know, this, this kind of, these sort of assumptions, so it, it's there. Um, I didn't focus on the clients. Um, what I wanted to do with sex work specifically was just hear the voices of the people who are in there for once. So maybe there's, uh, maybe in a way there's an absence of patriarchy from is that well that makes sense to say yeah and i think um, maybe one of the things you're touching on is um you can give sex workers all the power you want but it's still part of a patriarchal structure Mm. to even have sex work in the first place possibly is maybe an angle yeah and the am- and that's the debate around the current amnesty motion yeah. or the proposed amnesty motion oh no it's, it's been passed now so oh, cool. um yeah so the um I'd, it was actually quite a deliberate thing that there's very there are very few clients in there there's um in in, in the book it's it's very much um you know the, the sex work kind of happen happens off scene even though you're hearing you know that you're meeting the characters but you're not necessarily going to their work necessarily apart from in the first scene I've just realized that um but uh, yeah for me I went on a very very long journey while researching this and my idea of what feminism was and what my feminism was changed a lot all the way through um and where I've come down now eventually is that I to me it only makes sense um to uh, you know I I, kind of want to sorry I want to kind of take the time to (laughs) think through this um to me, it only makes sense to um, seriously kind of pursue uh, something that's to do. Sorry. Um, do you so mean like something that's practically implementable? So you're not going to yes, get rid of sex you. work. Thanks. Yeah. Much as we might like. So to, it's just what I would like to do is uh, yeah. what I would like to do. Um, well the the thing that I think is is the best thing to do. The way the best way to approach is just to look at sex workers safety what what can make things the safest for sex workers out there what courses of action can we take to make sure that these women are protected and 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 safe and heard and listened to um and that to me seems now and i didn't always think like this far more important than sending out some sort of big message that might actually hurt individual women at the bottom of the pile 
um, along the way. So yeah, that's yeah. that's where we came. I actually think that's the perfect note to end on. Sure. And um, thank you all so much for coming. And sorry we've put the brakes on all of a sudden, but I've noticed the time. I mm. knew I would run over. <laughs> um, but we need to give a massive warm thank you to Kirsten. <laughs> and if you... You're most welcome to follow us to the bookshop where this is for sale and will be signed and possibly might be time for another quick question to yeah. Kirsten while she's signing. But thank you all again so much for coming. More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Edbookfest.